Welcome to the Emerging Women Podcast, where we hear from brilliant women leaders creating big change in the world. I'm Chantal Pirat, your host, and my guest today is Esther Perel, here to talk to us about the always compelling topic of intimate relationships. Esther's new podcast, Where Should We Begin?, in collaboration with Audible.com, is striking a chord. It hit number three on the charts up there with This American Life by taking conversations once reserved for the psychotherapist's office and making them a part of public discourse. In this way, Esther is giving us the language we need to discuss the multitude of possibilities and options that exist for creating a thriving relationship in modern times. When speaking to a couple, she invites them to consider the vast array of factors, both internal and external, that affect relationship. Desire and sexuality, yes, but also culture, class, longing, betrayal, unemployment, infertility, romanticism, illness, fear, death. All of life's big issues are discussed openly and honestly to see what they have to teach us about the human heart. We're just scratching the surface of this endlessly juicy topic today. So Esther will be speaking again at our annual event, Emerging Women Live 2017 in Denver, to delve deeper into the conundrums and the complexities of relationship. I hope you'll join us in October for Emerging Women Live, and let's start laying the groundwork now with the real, real of relationships with the dynamic and prolific Esther Perel. Hello and welcome, Esther Perel. Hello, how are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm good. I know you've been traveling a lot and out there in the world with all that you have going on, new book coming up, a new podcast series. So I'm, I'm happy that you can make the time and share your a wisdom. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. How are you? I uh, just landed yesterday, um, so we can plunge right back in. And um, while I was away, a lot of things happened. So um, I actually have some things to talk about. You do? And they're new. <laughs> <laughs> you always have things to talk about. Well, you've got your book coming up, The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. I can't wait to get my hands on that. That's coming up in the fall, and you've just launched a 10-part series in partnership with Audible, doing an Audible original podcast series called Where Should We Begin? I would love to hear a little bit more about that, because that sounds very unusual. So the idea was, how do we bring more truth um, how, to this world and more t- relational truth and more truth about couples and their intimate lives um, in a way that is very different from the smiley faces that we often get to see on Facebook and on other social platforms. Um, nobody actually really knows what goes on behind closed doors of a couple. People often think that it's just happening to them. And often there is quite a bit of loneliness in the presence of another. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was on Ira Glass this week and, you know, he had a whole episode where 
he talked about, you know, one of the most lonely experiences people can have is marriage. I thought, how grim can we do better? So when Audible approached me and June Cohen, who I had worked with at uh, TED, uh, came to actually originally suggest something more similar to the consulting that I had done for the, done for the Showtime series, The Affair. And the idea at the time was to do a kind of a he said, she said, which on the one hand I thought was rather binary, but also in any relationships, be it two he's, two she's, or alternations, um, it's really one person and then the other. It's not what I said and what you said. It's what I said that made you do and say what you don't say, which isn't necessarily what you meant to say, but it's what you felt provoked to say, which then makes me say something that I didn't really want to say. And then I end up making you do the opposite of what I actually really want from you, but I trigger you and then you react in a way that makes me do more of the thing that I don't want to do and certainly you don't like. And it becomes the more, the more. That kind of feedback loop is much more likely in couples and um, then the kind of uh, my version, your version kind of thing. And, um, and I thought that it's so typical and often misunderstood in the lives of couples that we are not, you know, essential. This is how she is. This is how she is. That this is who we become by virtue of who we are with and how we organize ourselves in relationships and how the relationship creates us as much as we create it. And we began to see Sessions, patients, couples, they're not patients, they're really couples, actually, uh, who applied for the podcast. We sent out one email. We had 450 applications uh, for 10 spots. And we worked with the model that I customarily work with, which is a three-hour consultation as an initial session in my office with the only difference that they were microphones. And for the rest, we forget about them within a, min a minute and we just do the work. And so they are unscripted, anonymous, one-time couples therapy sessions, therapeutic conversations. Um, it's more real than real. And at the same time, when it is so raw and you record the story, you actually make the story become more meaningful, more universal. So we're already getting lots of responses from, from comments from people on all the platforms about how much um, hearing other people has made them understand their own better and made them want to have the conversations that they need to have. And, and the story takes on a bigger meaning when you know that, that what you've struggled with is going to help other people. Now, you, within a week, this uh, series, Where Should We Begin, reached number three up there with This American Life. So I think you are definitely striking a chord, to say the least. And the opportunity to kind of be in on someone's private therapy session and have that resonate and learn from that, I think, is incredible. Because I've tried to get a personal therapy session with you and it's not inexpensive just on the side note so this is fabulous and I can't wait to dig in myself so I know you've done interviews and therapy with hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of couples so aside from just the 10 that you picked are there certain themes that you see that are coming out that are universal whether they're among 
heterosexual, same-sex, trans-sex couples. What are you seeing out there? I mean, you know, um, this was also a way for people to be able to work with me um, without, you know, for free, um, yeah. which I do a lot. Um, there's a number of hours a week for me that I give away all the time. So um, the idea was at first people come because they know me around my work on sexuality and couples and my work around desire and my work on infidelity. And so we, of course, got a lot of people who came with those stories. But I really wanted the vast um, um, panoply of issues that we deal with in life, love, longing, betrayal, trust, infertility, homelessness, um, unemployment, um, the broad spectrum of existential conundrums of emotional realities that we find ourselves in. And so we have a little of everything. We have straight, gay, trans couples. We have them coming from all multiple cultures, um, multiple languages. Um, they, they don't all live in New York City where I work yeah. uh, by far. Um, and all social classes as well. Um, And hopefully the breadth and the diversity will keep expanding. That is the hope for the second season. We are already recording the second season. So we had begun to record the second season even before the first one was out because Audible really believed in the project. Um, I hope we will do it in other countries, in other languages, which I can work in, um, so that it will not just be um, a, a, a U.S. Um, a, a series of relationships and couples, mm-hmm. and um, so it's it's as diverse as inclusive. It could be more. It can always be more um, of the stories of people's lives. Um, we have the, the the session I'm editing now is a session where a young woman found herself with a brain tumor. Um, and so we're dealing with with illness, with the fear of death, with a baby that arrives right at the time that she's pregnant. I mean, really, the the stuff of life. Yeah. Um, we're not looking very far. People, you know, we all deal with stuff, and uh, and there's no need to go digging very far to find it. But there's about four episodes that deal with issues related to infidelity because. They also were ways to illustrate some of the stories from the state of affairs, different people, but, you know, how I think about it, how I work with it. And I wanted to have, when I would do the audio reading of my book next month, I'm reading the whole uh, audible version, I will insert, hopefully, in the reading of the book, sections of sessions from the podcast so that you can read and then you can hear how it actually sounds in the room when this conversation takes place yeah. so that people can engage with these ideas and these experiences through, through, through the, the listening experience, through the reading experience, you know, multiple entry points. We all learn and connect in different ways. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned infidelity as being something that out of four couples out of the 10 we're dealing with. And I know one of your TED Talks, The Secret to Desire in a Long-Term Relationship, has, I don't know, close to 10 million views. And now you're focusing on infidelity, which is a, you know, I'm not saying that these are polar opposites, but 
I'm curious to see like why the shift from the monogamous long-term relationship and keeping that alive to the nuance and all of the life that happens in between the cracks of a relationship that is dealing with infidelity? It's a great question. So see, if I was to put it like that, I would say mating in captivity is looking at the dilemmas of desire inside modern couples. Yeah. And the state of affairs looks at what happens when desire goes looking elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But it is still a study of desire. It is in both cases. What, by, 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 by deepening the investigation of this particular thing, what does it tell us about relationships, about human nature, about love, lust, and commitment these days? Mm. I, it's less a book specifically about affairs as about what affairs have to teach us about the human heart, what we expect, what we think we want, and what we feel entitled to. And in this way, affairs offer a unique window into our personal and cultural attitudes about love, about sexuality, about commitment. So I examine illicit love from multiple angles, and I engage or hope to engage readers and listeners into the same honest, enlightened and entertaining explorations of modern relationships in their many variations. Mm. Um, You know, the questions I ask in mating were, why does good sex fade even in couples who love each other as much as ever? Why is the forbidden so erotic? Why does intimacy not guarantee good sex? Why does sex make babies and babies spell erotic disaster in couples? (laughs) And what is the difference... (laughs) And what is the difference between love and desire? In the state of affairs, I ask, why do people cheat, even those in happy marriages? Why does an affair hurt so much? When we say infidelity, what exactly do we mean? And do our romantic expectations set us up for betrayal? Is there such a thing as an affair-proved marriage? Is it possible to love more than one person at a time? Can an affair ever help a marriage? It's all of this that I want these questions that help me um, delve into the crevices of the human heart. You know, love is messy, infidelity even more so. And how do we rebuild? How do we repair, as in re-become a pair of two? Um, And those questions have basically navigated both books, but this time I enter through a very different door. Um, But not not the opposite door, just mm-hmm. another another door in the same house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels very timely, this idea of allowing desire to have multiple expressions in us. And I don't like the word polyamory. I feel like, you know, I'm also French like you, and I just feel like, why can't people just call it French? Why does it have to be like labeled some mm-hmm. scientific... You know, the French know, the Europeans know how to, you know, it's complicated, it's nuanced. And yet in in this U.S. culture, we're so black and white of this is monogamy and this is, quote, polyamory and this is. But I think that something's happening and I'm seeing it very much in terms uh, playing out in millennials where there's a fluidity of desire. There's a fluidity of gender. There's a fluidity of identity. And I'm wondering if that is some kind of 
evolution, not only in terms of relationship, but in our consciousness that seems to be playing out that makes this book and this topic so timely? So let me start from a different place. I think that part of why I study desire is because um, we, one of the big changes that has occurred in the realm of relationships is that for a long time throughout history, our relationships were primarily organized around duty and obligation. And the rise of individualism and the rise of consumerism and the rise of capitalism has shifted that by which we now have our relationships no longer organized around duty and obligation, but around freedom, possibility, self-fulfillment, more and more. And so that's where desire enters. Desire is to own the wanting. This is true in, in, in relation to, to couples. It's really true in relationship to, to the market in general. We want experiences and we want those experiences to be fueled by desire. And so we are all wondering what is this thing called desire? And we have become promiscuous. We have become promiscuous sexually. We are brand promiscuous. I mean, we are. We are not at this moment in a very singular model because otherwise we wouldn't be shopping that much. So mm -hmm. what you see in the macro economy is also what you see in the emotional economy of a couple. So the rise of desire, as in the owning of the wanting, goes hand in hand with the rise of the, of the, the centrality of the individual. I don't think we have more desires today than we ever had, but mm -hmm. I think we definitely form, feel more entitled to pursue our desires than we ever had. And that is a major shift. We came from decades, decades of, of hundreds of years, thousands of years where happiness existed for the afterlife to wanting happiness on earth and not just as a possibility, but as a mandate. And so if I don't longer feel attracted to my partner, if I don't feel the kind of desire, if my relationship isn't passionate, I start to feel restless and I feel, start to feel like I deserve more. And the question is, how far does this deserving go? Do I, you know, our oldest model is proclaimed monogamy and clandestine adultery. People mm -hmm. have not necessarily been monogamous. They've just practiced it clandestine way. Most of the time, men, because monogamy was an imposition on women and it was part of an economic system. Men have never had to be particularly monogamous, and then they benefited from a host of theories to explain why they had the right to roam, and it was part of their nature. And we created this view that women are domesticated creatures. All of this enters into the conversation about monogamy today, which in itself needs to be really loosened up, as in the concept, this idea that there is either closed or open. Now, for most of history, monogamy was one person for life, Today, monogamy is one person at a time. And everybody goes around talking about how they are monogamous in all their relationships. And it makes perfect sense suddenly. Mm -hmm. This is the conversation. What are the boundaries? In the name of personal fulfillment and personal happiness, are there boundaries that still stand? What, do, are we capable of maneuvering multiple loves? Are we what is the degree of transparency that we need to do this in? How do we maintain trust? What do we do with jealousy? What do we do with one of the oldest ideologies that is still going around called romanticism? Communism has fallen. Socialism has fallen. Only romanticism is the last ideology of the 19th century that is left standing. And 
this is the pool we're swimming in with not not specific responses. We can call it ethical non-monogamy. We can call it radical transparency. We can call it polyamory. Basically, what we're looking at, all in all, is how do we combine the age-old fundamental human need for stability, for commitment, for love, for connection, for protection, with the equally strong need that we have for novelty, for change, for mystery, for awe, for transcendence. And are there new relational configurations that we can look for that will help us combine these two sets of fundamental human needs? Why millennials? Because the millennials are the children of the divorced and the disillusioned. But this is actually not just a conversation among millennials. It's also a conversation about, you know, the 40-year-olds, which is the old 20-year-olds, basically. Right. (laughs) Everybody is grappling with, is there more than can be done than divorce? Are we, do we just have this option? Can we do more? Can we rethink our relationships? People do it in their businesses all the time. Every few years, they review their business. How's it going? Are we still on target? Are we renewing ourselves? Are we on, are we on point? Are we on message? You know, what's our, what's our degree of commitment, creativity, delivery? People never think about any of these things about their relationships. They expect they will just last for 60 years without having to do any of this check-in. Mm-hmm. And this is what is changing, is that if you want your relationships to be vibrant, vital, alive, thriving, you have to invest in them the way that we have all learned to invest in our professional lives. I feel that you are really on the forefront of recreating what does it mean to be in relationship, both in terms of marriage or monogamy or just simple partnership, however you want to term it. But I agree with you that people want that stability. They want the one or maybe it's two or I don't understand people who want the five, but I know they're out there. And so... I feel like there's just so much taboo when you break out of that, that traditional monogamy, marriage, I'll say, heterosexual marriage, if we want to be real about that taboo that still exists, meaning anything outside of that is taboo. And so you're really normalizing the possibility that there could be more and that it's okay for there to be more. And these interviews that you're doing, I think, are an opportunity for us to see that, hey, whether we taboo it or not, it's out there and it's happening. And, you know, if it's happening to you and your relationship, you know, it's normal. So is it normal? Is it really normal? Is this something that actually is going to be the new normal? You only know the new normal after it has become the new norm. You know, in the beginning, when people were divorcing, it was highly stigmatized. Right. People were hiding it. They were embarrassed about it. They felt a terrible sense of failure. They were often excluded. They lost their social center, their communities. They felt they they began pariahs or sweats or all of that. Today, the experience is still painful and still sometimes isolating, but nothing to compare with what it was like when I was a child and there were two children of divorced family in my classroom and we knew, you know, they were different. So um, I think we are in a transition that's quite clear. We're in transition because people want relationships and they want them to work and to last 
but they're not prepared to do some of the sacrifices that their parents and grandparents were prepared to do. And so they're looking for ways to stay together. The non-monogamy of the 70s was basically a rejection of the bourgeois model of, uh, of, re- of marriage. The, 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 the quests of today, the rethinking of the relationship arrangements, um, of the contracts and all of that, is, is not about not believing in marriage or in committed relationships. It's actually new ways to secure that the committed relationships will stay. Um, and I think we are in a very creative time. Uh, and when people are in transition and, in, and creating, they fumble, they, they stumble, um, they correct, they realize what they need to keep, they realize what they can change, and, uh, and one observes it. I think it's, what is maybe dangerous is to make quick conclusions. What is dangerous is to think that one has answers. And maybe where you and I meet, I'm not French, but I'm Belgian, and we are from a tradition close to each other in Europe where we may feel less of a pressure to have an answer for everything right. and to think that every problem has a solution. And in that sense, I am a thinker and an observer and, an, and a person who deconstructs and shapes, participates in the shaping of social realities. But I don't feel that I need to come up with an answer. I am, not, you know, to claim yes. ourselves as, a, um, as an expert on relationships Sometimes it's a little funny. I'm, I'm swimming in the same waters. I'm yeah. leaving the same questions. I think that we are, there are no experts on relationship. There are just some of us who have done more thinking about it, yeah. who have sat in the trenches for three decades or more like I have and have understood the complexity of this and, and sometimes the need to slow down and, and particularly to understand in a humble way, the multiple motives that people have for making the decisions that they make. And once we no longer have the church, the synagogue, the community, the elders who tell us what to do, and we have to make all these decisions ourselves these days, we will live with greater freedom, but we also live with a lot of more uncertainty about is this the right decision? You know, we used to divorce because we were unhappy. Today we divorce because we could be happier. Yeah. And then the question becomes, how, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? What is this concept of ROI applied to marriage, you know? Um, and it's that which is happening, is that we are continuously wondering, is this the kind of relationship I want to be in? Is this good enough? Am I actualizing myself here? Is it a structure? We, and, and that becomes a very personal answer. And if you're going to make a decision about that, you have to be able to own the consequences of it. And you just watch people do this and you learn. You don't come to tell them, stay, leave, do this. This is good enough. This isn't, this isn't sustainable. It's, you, you, you give them the love and the support, but you don't pretend that you know their answers. Yeah, I think what you said was really interesting. Like, am I self-actualizing myself here? I think that relationship has become a place where people grow personally and transform personally. And whereas before it was, okay, now we're shoring up the house and we're surviving together. And now it's like, how much growth am I doing in this relationship? And that both puts a lot of pressure on the relationship, but also is a wonderful role for relationship. And my question is, how much 
weight do we put on that in terms of our own personal transformation? How much weight do we put on the relationship as providing for us in that way, providing that personal growth and that evolution? A lot. Look, uh, in the 60s, in our, when we were in our 20s, 80% of us were married. Today, it's 20% of us. So when we got married or together, committed, we were following what is called the cornerstone model of marriage. In the cornerstone model of marriage, you and I got together and we basically developed together. We grew together. We, we confronted life and its challenges. And in a way, we were maybe more prepared for the bumps. But we are today in a capstone model of marriage in which I go away, I go to school, I develop myself, I even may have already secured a housing situation for myself. Um, and when we meet, I've already worked on my identity. And I come to you as a person who has invested in me. And you are going to choose me or me you on the basis of the recognition of this high investment. And so it's, it's, it, the, the, the capstone model, I've already sown my proverbial oats, and you are there as an act of recognition for everything that I have worked on to become. And yeah. And now, I hope that I'm going to be able to continue to develop and to grow and to shine with you. But the biggest problem of the capstone model is that it is also a very uh, narrow model. It is a model in which we are asking one person to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Mm -hmm. And that is very different. I want you to give me the stability, the security, the safety, the, the whole predictability anchoring part of life. And I want you to be passion and play and awe and mystery and novelty and excitement. And I want you to be my best parent and my intellectual equal and my best friend and my trusted confidant. Can we pack up more on one person in a party of two? That's a tall order. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Yeah. You know, and, and, and people do not understand that, you know, in a company, everybody understands that you need different people for different roles. And everybody gets it, mm -hmm. you know, and that these roles need to be complementary. In marriage, we really think that our one partner needs to be able to fulfill all the roles. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that if we don't or if they don't, then it means we're not enough or they're not enough or they're not the one. The one. The one has always been a concept, you know, from Cinderella on. But the one has become more and more and more packed with expectations that mm -hmm. we're crumbling under. Mm -hmm. um, and so what used to be was that marriage was one of the units in which you lived and it gave you access to many other sources of happiness and well-being and connection and social meaning and so forth. Today, we want the relationship, the committed relationship, the partnership to be the source of all of that. Mm -hmm. And um, that works for very few people is what it ends up being. Mm -hmm. You know, I was telling Tim Ferriss on the, um, was it Tim Ferriss? No, I think maybe it was Twyra Glass I said it, but it was, um, I tried to, uh, to do a survey by which I asked people to tell me if, how many in couples do they know that inspire them, that they have a spark, that they have that thing that they would like to model themselves after and so forth. And, uh, and basically the majority of people could come up sometimes with one couple. Mm. And when I ask people to talk about musicians, artists, entrepreneurs, 
you know, thought leaders, I can tell you they have more than one person on their list. Mm -hmm. It's a little, uh, it, it speaks volumes. It does. Um, you know, where are we looking for the models? And then to then also have a one-size-fits-all approach to marriage, that is what is going to change. The issue is not which is the right model. The issue is that there can't be just one model. And neither can there be necessarily one model in your life if you're going to live it till your 90s. You may have experienced different models at different times in your life. Mm -hmm. We are going to see marriage become more flexible and more fluid the way that you were talking about it in relation to sexuality. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, I know you've got a tight deadline here. I appreciate the time. And we are very much looking forward to having you at Emerging Women Live this fall. So more to come. Same, same here. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to be digging and delving and probing and <laughs> into the conundrums and into the complexities of modern relationships. And, and we're going to try to make sense out of it. And we're going to try to help people get unstuck. And we're going to try to help people see that they have more options than they sometimes know about. And we're going to put thriving relationships at the center. You know, Chantal, it's like a few years ago, not too long, if I was to be going to even to work with companies on relationship issues, it was always when there was a crisis uh -huh. and it was considered soft skills. Nobody really cared much about relational intelligence. Mm -hmm. And... These days, with the changing economy, there is no way that you can have a service economy that isn't highly relationally attuned. And so everything that we were talking about in the four walls of the psychotherapist's office is now become part of the public conversation. Yes. And that's what's very exciting. And so I, that's what I find exciting about being at Emerging Women is that I get to speak on your stage and to share with the women that are there concerns that were not part of the public discourse until recently. And I love that. Awesome. Yay. Okay, well, take good care and we look forward to more in the fall and and we'll be in touch. Perfect. Very okay, well. Okay, love. Take good care. Bye-bye. Big kiss. Bye-bye. Yep.